Hello, welcome to Behind the Scenes with me, Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which people working in entertainment, behind the cameras, kindly share with us their never-before-heard anecdotes and stories. These are voices you don't often hear. I also chat with performers and actors to get a glimpse behind the glamour, the business behind the show. If you have any questions, please go to www.steamsmokeandmirrors.com Hit the Contacts tab, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. This week we're meeting one of film and television's true multi-skilled talents. In fact, the diversity of his expertise is frankly staggering, and the huge range of his knowledge and capabilities is nothing less than infuriating, because for more than 20 years in front of the camera, he has appeared as a featured actor, supporting artist, and a stuntman. But behind the scenes, he is a historical documentary producer, director, cameraman, production manager, fight and stunt coordinator, prop builder, weapons consultant, and history advisor specializing in Roman, Greek, Egyptian, and modern army warfare. He's worked on Channel 4's Time Team, A Scrap Heap Challenge, the BBC's Time Watch, and most of the documentaries which air on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, and Yesterday. More recently, with his son Sam, he built and opened a much-needed, brand-new film and television studio facility. And that's something you don't hear often, folks, a new studio being opened. But somehow he's found time in his diary to speak with us. So I'm thrilled, honoured to welcome Mr. John Naylor. Welcome, sir. Oh, thank you. That's, that's a, a heck of a build-up to live up to. So I hope I can do you, do you uh, the, the credit there, Colin. Thank you. <laughs> As I say, thank you for finding the time. I mean, I like to keep busy. And I like to try different things. But quite honestly... You, in your life, have taken it to a whole new level. So your time management skills must be fantastic. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm always struggling to, to manage my time. So maybe they, they, they might be pretty good, but they could be better. <laughs> mm, yeah, but oh, my God, the diversity of your skills is remarkable. And I'm, I'm fascinated, always been fascinated with history, documentary making. And with you, I don't really know where to, don't know where to start. So I guess the easiest way in is to say, for you, what came first, John? A fascination with the past or an interest in filmmaking itself? I always loved history. History was, was a passion for me when I was at school and, and beyond. If you, we go back to when we were children, you've got the biblical epics on and, and things like the fall of the Roman Empire and stuff like that. It was fascinating filmmaking back then. And I fell in love with it as a child. However, 13 years old, pragmatism sort of jumps in and I dropped history at school. And that could have been the end of it until uh, luckily I went to university at Canterbury. And when I was signing on for the course to do psychology, the uh, registrar said, while you're here, do you want to uh, do a, a minor as well? And I said, yeah, OK, what can I do? And she said, well, it's Canterbury. Why not medieval social history? So I did a minor in medieval history at Canterbury oh. and it re 
rekindled my love for the past, especially doing research in, in Canterbury Cathedral and on original documents and things like that. Yeah. Oh, man, that just show you're actually in the right place to do it, aren't you? That's fantastic. Yeah. Being involved in historical documentaries, just to explain for my listener, you're really, your, your, your basic involvement is involved in the narrative reenactment scenes that you get in those historical documentaries. For example, what I'm trying to say is you film and stage those films where the mummy, uh, the pharaoh is being mummified, Caesar's being assassinated, and Cleopatra's clutching the, the asp to her bosom. And it always struck me when watching historical documentaries that those filmettes, which illustrate the story, have all the production values of a, of a Hollywood movie. I mean, Ridley Scott would look at it and say, yeah, yeah, that's pretty damn good. You know, and so I guess your documentary making requires a multi-skilling approach when you're working with such a minuscule uh, budget. Yeah, often we are a very small crew and a very tight crew, very small budget, working in small studios or on locations. And we've done things like we've turned uh, South Shields into ancient Egypt and <laughs> things like that, you know, because it has to be done. Um, so that side of the drama recons or the drama reconstruction um, is really demanding. But that means that as a filmmaker, you've got to look at where you're filming from, the perspective that you're offering the viewer, as well as everything that you put in front of camera. So it's it's a real challenge. And I love that that challenge because you've got to be creative in your approach to it. You've got to be a bit of a um, a sort of MacGyver of, of the the scene to to get a, a, a really first class prop sometimes and sometimes a less than experienced actor and combine them in a, a studio that's probably not suited at all in a noisy London suburb and create something that we hope is as filmic as, as Ridley would do. And Ridley's an amazing director and I've worked with him. And yes, if he likes my work, my job's done. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the authenticity has to be even more precise in your filmmaking than say in a Hollywood feature film, doesn't it? Oh yeah. And, and feature films often drive me nuts by the, the lack of historical authenticity, but it doesn't have to be 100% accurate if you're doing a narrative, a story, a drama. That's fine. Mm. But when we're doing a, a reconstruction of um, a grave find from uh, Palestine, as we were doing earlier this year, we've got to try and make it as accurate as we possibly can. And sometimes you find you know a little bit more even than the lead archaeologist on the show. Uh, we were asked to do a particular garment. Uh, we were doing a scene a prehistoric scene in Palestine. And the archaeologist said, well, of course I've got linen uh, for the clothing. And I went, mm, well, let's see. The earliest paper we've got is from Palestine, but the, that's linen being the, the mechanics of turning linen the plant into linen the cloth is about a thousand years after you're saying so. Have you got spindle whirls or weaving combs or loom weights or anything like that and he had to say well no so we went with um proto textiles where we were literally using retted linen so the fibers instead of spinning it into cloth we wove that to make some proto textiles which uh, 
it's fascinating stuff if you're a boring old fart like me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's that ability that you've got, I guess, for, for making stuff on the hoof. If someone said, oh, forget looms, can we have a boat? Oh, we should have a boat in this. And, and I guess you're in a position to say, give me half a day, you can have a boat, I guess. Yeah, we've done some amazing boat scenes. Um, everything from building just part of a boat for Jonah and having the camera on a lala, which is basically a plank where you're moving the camera up and down instead of moving the boat, and then spraying it with a plant sprayer and hitting it with a wind machine and flapping things around the smoke machine to create that sort of scene on just six feet length of, of uh, sort of bulwark of the side of a boat. Mm. Or we've just done one for the Smithsonian Channel over in the US where we got a, a little rented boat, uh, a little wooden one, that needed to sail across Manhattan Harbour in Victorian New York. So we put that on a dolly with a green flexi on top of it on a green screen studio with Sam, my son, who we'll talk about later, mm. pulling it with a, with a rope. So we had the boat moving away from a quayside we built and that was just knocked together in a car park underneath an editing suite. <laughs> I, I think that's just absolutely fantastic. I'll, I'll come to my attempts at making stuff. I've always loved people who can make stuff, but you seem to have an expertise in, in wood, in metals and in plastics. Uh, is that, uh, uh, are those skills that you've acquired or did you, did you have to go to a special school to learn those techniques, working with those particular products? I was really lucky as a, as a child. I grew up in a rural mining community where hand skills were really important. And the school I went to was so one of the largest in the country at the time. But it was a comprehensive school. They had everything. We got wood workshops. I was taught metal casting and forging. Went from being 11 years old. Um, we'd even got a full theatre. And we had a farm. So I was taught animal husbandry. You know, if you were a bright kid, you ended up instead of having extra lessons, we got to spend time looking after sheep and butchering uh, turkeys for Christmas and things like that. I'm vegan now, but <laughs> back then <laughs> yes. I, I had no problem with killing and, and cleaning animals. And um, you mentioned Palestine, um, and I know that you've, and, and you've been to South Shields. <laughs> <laughs> to, re to, re to recreate that scene for that marvellous Agatha Christie documentary you were involved in. But where in the world has your camera taken you? Um, all over. There are two continents I've not been to. I've not yet been to Antarctica or Australasia. Mm. But otherwise, I've been pretty much over most of the world. A few favourite places. I loved Mexico. Mexico is fantastic. Um, the history there. Uh, is it, amazing. Uh, and Vietnam. I think Vietnam is probably one of the friendliest countries I've ever visited. It, it, uh, I had huge adventures in Vietnam, loved it to bits. Oh, beautiful. And I'm guessing in this country and abroad, as a cameraman uh, working with various directors, you have to be a bit of, I mean, I've got great regard for cameramen. Cameramen are, my, <laughs> other than vision mixers in a, in a television studio, on location, cameramen are my favourite people in the world. But you've got to be a bit of a diplomat with a director, haven't you? Does that kind of diplomacy come easy to you? Um, I hope so. I mean, there have been occasions where I've I've stood with the director and said, are you really sure you want that filming? Um, <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Yeah. And the other thing is, 
I mean, it's a classic. My wife's a costume designer, as you well know, and she's mm -hmm. a good costume designer. And you'll get somebody say, well, uh, we're in a hurry. Let's have the actor on set. But uh, it doesn't matter that they've got the wrong shoes on. They've got their carpet slippers on. You know, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Peter Cushing famously acted halfway through Star Wars wearing carpet slippers instead of boots. Mm. You know, it's things like that. Yes, yes. So we agree with the, the director. Right, we're not going to shoot the feet. Mm. We're going to keep it as mid shots and, yeah. and tight singles, no problem. And then the director will say, right, I want to have the actor walking in and we'll have the establisher of them walking in on a wide. And my initial reaction is saying, you know it's going to end up in the edit, don't you? Mm. You know they're going to put that in the final cut. And, oh, no, 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 I'll tell the editor not to do it. And it always, always, always ends up in the final cut. Yes. So yes. there's a time when directors do need to be reined in it's a tiny anecdote. I've just been teaching down at uh, the National Youth Theatre. So I was teaching on their backstage course and I came up with a coding system. Producers are your best friends because they pay the bills. Mm. Actors, and I include myself in that, are often la-las. Mm. Directors are just dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> that I will record that uh, and I'll use that ever and quote you because that is that is the law of film and television. I think that's perfect, <laughs> perfectly encapsulated. I've done a little bit, a tiny little bit of uh, portable single camera, or we used to call it portable single camera directing. Uh, but I was very lucky. I had uh, a cameraman called Nigel Reynolds say to me, "I would talk to the performer and say, well, actually, can we do the joke this way?'" And Nigel will say, is that is that what you want, Colin? And yeah, thank you, Nigel. That looks perfect. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Knowing full well that he knows far more about it than I do. And I always think any director in inverted commas worth their salt will listen when the when the cameraman says, as you said, well, if that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's have a look at it again, shall we? How did you break into film and television? I'd, um, because I can ride a horse and I can swing a sword and I've done martial arts and skills from <laughs> being six years old. This is more stuff uh, that I haven't told everybody about. This is more stuff. <laughs> I'd ended up bitting and bobbing um, on uh, films, some major feature films as well, um, as a, what's called a key fight or principal fight. So you're, you're fighting against principles swinging swords, falling off horses, things like that. So it's not part of the stunt team necessarily, but very much engaged with, with second unit doing that sort of action. Um, and I was doing that in between other jobs. Then I got to the year 2000, everything turning around, um, and I decided it's now or never really. You know, I've, I've, I'd served as a soldier, I'd served as a teacher, so I'd served my nation and my community. Mm -hmm. I figured... Let's go for it. I'll see if I can make a living in the TV industry. Um, and if I live on baked beans, I live on baked beans. Now, I was really lucky in, the, in that first year, um, we were introduced to Nick Knowles, and we did a series with Nick um, that was originally called Histrionics, mm. uh, or Dead Famous, then it became Histrionics, which shamefully was never recommissioned. It was a hugely popular series on Sunday nights on BBC One. We had great fun making it. Uh, and that was dramatised comedic history. And I also met a producer called Matt Hahn, who was working for October Films, mm. and they were doing serious historical documentaries on the side. And before I knew it, I'd fallen into the world 
wholeheartedly and I was loving everything I was doing, whether it was um, burning down a roundhouse at Butzer Ancient Farm, mm-hmm. um, which we did literally by shooting arrows into the roof as a demonstration, uh, but also so that the archaeologists could look at what a burnt roundhouse remains would look like afterwards to compare to, to what had been dug up earlier to um, teaching Lucy Lawless to fight. You know, Lucy at the time was the highest paid woman on TV in the world, a Xena warrior princess. Yeah. And I'm booked in to, to, to actually teach her how to fight like a Roman. I'm thinking, this is amazing. I've got to do more of this. Oh, my goodness me. Absolutely. So you mentioned Ridley Scott. You mentioned Lucy Lawless. Who else have you worked with? Tell me. Oh, no. Sorry. I've realised I've name dropped. That's horrendous. We're allowed to, John. Honestly, on the, uh, on this podcast, we're allowed to. There are some people who you can really enjoy working with. There are some people who they are absolute treasures of, of the film and TV industry. I was lucky a couple of years ago to do a series with... Um, Sir David Jason. Oh, wow. And uh, we did a series about spies together. Uh, and they involved in, you know, I had to blow him up a couple of times. The risk assessment for the BBC was horrendous. <laughs> um, and all this sort of thing. And and Sir David, he he was the nicest guy going. He doesn't suffer fools gladly. He struggles sometimes with, with uh, people not taking the job seriously. Uh, but um, he, we used to sit in the back of his car with his driver and rehearse what we were about to do because we were working on location in strange places. And he always treated me as though I was his equal or, you know, he always treated me absolutely perfectly, which is why I still call him sir. He yes. is Sir David and I will call him sir. Yeah. And um, although at the very end of it, um, he was saying goodbye, I'd, you know, sort of wrap of the whole series, he was saying goodbye to myself and my wife, Karen, and said, Karen, when John blows himself up, give me a call. I'll take you on. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I think when performers are at that, at that high level, they still always bring their A game to the party. And some some of them have reputations of being difficult, but actually, because they're bringing the A game, they kind of expect everybody else to bring the A game as well. And I think probably the producer's job is to bring uh, uh, A-list people from behind the camera, in front of the camera, to work with them, I think, to bring out the best. Um, he, he was amazing to work with. And partway through uh, the series, at one point, we're doing a a, a two-piece to camera, the pair of us, and I stepped back and tripped over a box and fell flat on my behind right next to him. And he just looked down at me and went, oh, you plonker. And I thought, a chip <laughs> unlocked. Yes. Finally, you plonker from Sir David Jason. <laughs> I think that means you've arrived, actually, in the industry, doesn't it? <laughs> the ultimate compliment. I mean, forget BAFTA. That's the ultimate compliment. That's it. Absolutely, yeah. So there you are, you're acting with David Jason, but how did you actually learn camera work? Because that's a very exacting skill. Camera work is a very exacting skill. And the problem with camera work is you've got to stay up to date on the latest cameras. Mm. So although I am, you know, perfectly adequate to, to shoot, I wouldn't say I'm an expert DOP by any stretch. Um, you know, documentary sequences, action sequences, things like that, I'm perfectly happy shooting, particularly because if you're on, you've got a bit of a wobbly camera because you're halfway down a mountain dangling on a rope, yeah. you can get away with it. 
when it's in the studio and you're doing a really nice focus pull and move on on the uh, dolly and whatever at the same time, yeah, you've got to be a bit sharper than I am. <laughs> okay. But nevertheless, I mean, you've mentioned the fact that you were in the Royal Engineers, which means that you can make or you can fix anything from a, from a bridge to a Bren gun, usually, <laughs> usually in the rain or the mud. So if yeah. you're, not, you're not putting it together, you're blowing it up. So as a child, were you interested in how stuff worked? Were you, were you, were you the young man that used to pull the vacuum cleaner apart just to see how the damn thing worked? I used to take things apart, um, but danger was always interesting. Ah. Now, we've all done this, haven't we? We've all taken large capacitors, taped them to bamboo sticks, running cables down the end, so you've got two points <laughs> sticking out the end, and charged them off the mains and then sword fight with them so that when you hit the other person, they get a shock, haven't we? That's perfectly normal, I'm sure. You know, sort of making homemade tasers when you're 11, I think is normal. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I took things apart. Very rarely could I get them back together again. Um, but I'd got my uh, grandfather, bless him, was always tinkering. Um, he'd been a paratrooper at Arnhem and a signaller. And he worked with radios all the time in the shed. He was a, an AM radio or he would got the uh, Riley, the old Riley car up on um, either on jacks or on ramps. And he'd be tinkering with that. And, and I suppose it was just what I grew up with, really. Um, you're an armourer uh, mm-hmm. in film and television production, which is a very specialised uh, skill as well. But I suppose working with modern ordnance, uh, having served with the engineers, I, I guess as an armourer, that is kind of essential. But also being an armourer involves sword work and mace work and bows and uh, archery and stuff like that. Um, so, so what other skills have you got hidden up your up your uh, what, what do I want to say? Um, tr- uh, your, your, your chainmail gauntlet. Right. Um, I mean, armory engineering. Um, I've done a lot of action sports. So climbing, I've got um, diving qualifications, rescue boat qualifications, all that sort of thing. You know, small boat handling. Um, I've crewed yachts i'm not a, a master for for yacht sailing but i have crewed big yachts out into sea and stuff like that because I've, I've always been searching for adventure so that sort of thing more and more though i'm doing i'm experimenting with new materials and playing around with new materials so thermoplastics um 3d printing laser cutting that sort of thing paints and i'm quite lucky in that my position in the industry means that some of the suppliers, whether it's Bentley Chemicals or Polyprops or whatever, they often let me have their materials to experiment with and try I to create new props. When we started doing the history documentaries, most of the stuff was done in the right materials. So we'd be working in hardwoods and metals and bronzes mm. and things like that and bone and antler. Now, if it's a hero prop for an experiment, we tend to make it in the, in the correct materials but just for cast running through scene and whatever, we find it easier to work in modern materials. So I've just done, um, I've made proper antler helmets for Minoan warriors in the past, uh, but I needed five for a recent drama. So they were made out of EVA foam and mm-hmm. polypropylene and stuff like that. So, sure. Yeah. 
just staying ahead of the game. And also, I'm guessing with with modern materials now that there, there is a, a weight implication that you've got to be aware of, and, and these days maybe that weight implication is more important. If the actors are working with lighter stuff, it makes life a bit easier for them, I guess. Yeah, it's also often safer. If you're falling off a horse mm. and you're wearing real armour, then it hurts. Mm. Uh, and I know that from experience. <laughs> but wearing um, plastic armours and stuff like that gives you more flexibility. In fact, we had a, a massive problem when they were changing the law on firearms. They wanted to change it so we could no longer make imitation firearms, which in the film industry are a mainstay. And the difficulty with that was, if you work on something like Band of Brothers, imagine you're a, a German soldier, you get blown up, you fly through the air, and you land in a crumpled heap. If you've got a real rifle that weighs 11 pounds and is steel and hardwood, mm. and you land badly on that, you're in hospital. Mm. So we make rubber ones, which are better for stunt work. They were going to be banned. That all the rubber ones were going to be banned because of the Violent Crime Reduction Act that we uh, bill that became the act. Yeah. So we had to lobby the industry. And way back, we lobbied en masse. And I, I gave evidence to the Parliamentary Select Committee on why we needed to be able to do fake firearms. And luckily, they accepted that. And there's now a dispensation in the law saying ordinary people can't have them. But film, television, theatre and reenactors all can. So really, uh, I suppose the industry is becoming, as a consequence, rather with health and safety and risk assessment forms getting as long as your arm, uh, it's becoming rather more restrictive. And you, and I, I guess you, you can't be as cavalier, for want of a better word, air quotes, than, than you used to be, maybe. No, it's, um, it's only right and proper that we are safe. And now with vfx we can do things which look far more exciting than they ever did before mm. but combining live action and vfx so um in our studio i've just done a scene where we've we've hung somebody and hangings are always a problem as a as a stunt but what we've actually done in in our studio now is we've we've got a one and a half ton winch built into the roof for doing those sorts of scenes yeah. and it's so much easier to do somebody being hung in a safety harness, you've not got the problems of um, suspension trauma, which is, is a real thing where you lose consciousness because of being suspended and things like that. And it's all on a green screen and we can then comp it into the final edit. A quick aside, though, we're doing a sequence for a Netflix project that needs a stuntman to jump off a 14-metre building, but they also want the body to hit the deck and look like a body and the impact as it hits the floor. Uh, so we've acquired a proper crash test dummy <laughs> that's an anatomically correct, jointed, moves all perfectly, and so we can dress him, make him up, have him hit the deck in slow-mo, and then swap the actor back in. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm inclined to think that uh, it's that kind of reenactment stuff which which you really, really enjoy, but I'm going to press on because I want to get to Scrap Heap Challenge and I'm thinking maybe it was your, <laughs> your, your ability to make stuff from nothing, from a, from a pilot. Can you, make a, can you make that using nothing but this? Uh, and is that how you got the job on Scrap Heap Challenge on, on Channel 4? Yeah. That, I mean, I think they found me because I, I was known for building things like big catapults and flame projectors and stuff like that for mm. historical shows. Um, but the producer 
said, can I come down and see you? I said, yeah, sure. I'm filming on the Golden Hind at the moment in central London. Um, but if you want to pop down for a chat, feel free. So he turned up and said, I've seen what you've done on camera. Have you got any pictures or anything else of, of what you've done? I said, let's sit in the back of my van and we'll have a chat. And at the time, I got a large Renault Master van that looked like a normal van on the outside. Oh. But on the inside, I'd kitted it out to be comfortable. So there was, there was a little toilet in there. There was a sink. There was a bin for locking firearms away, all sorts of things. And I'd done it all by literally scavenging in, in a, a caravan scrapyard and things like that to get yeah. all the cupboard. And he sat down. He said, this van's amazing. And I said, yeah, I built it in between jobs. It, it just serves. He says, you're hired. That was it. I never had to show him anything. <laughs> oh, it's marvellous. That's marvellous. I mean, okay, I'm, I'm going to go. Um, what promised me to say this is it's way off track. But do you have any downtime at all? Um, yes, I do. We, we just actually had four days off. Uh, which were, we used to go with some friends to a music festival. I love music, um, love music all my life, and live music is special, especially after the lockdown. So a chance to spend time with friends mm. at a live music festival was well worth it. Yeah, okay. Oh, you, oh, you mentioned rock climbing. You mentioned the fact that you could rock climb, and that prompts me uh, the anecdote that I read when I was researching you. Uh, tell us about you abseiling down the side of a <laughs> cliff in Mexico. Um, and, and it doesn't, it's not, wasn't quite as simple as that, was it? No, it wasn't. I was very lucky to work on several series of a show called Ancient Discoveries. And uh, as, as the, one of the Ancient Discoveries team, we used to do experiments to show how ancient ideas could have really happened. And we've done crazy things, you know, like build a statue that weeps milk from its breasts and things like that through to um roman um torpedoes and whatever mm. now we were out in mexico doing lots of stories about the maya and popol vuh and lots of things like that but one of the stories was about the conquistadores managing to make gunpowder and we got an original paper in the um uh library in in mexico that we went and we looked at luckily i speak spanish so i was able to read that and um, it mentioned them going down into volcanoes to collect sulfur to combine with saltpeter from the town and charcoal to make gunpowder. Easy, isn't it? Well, we couldn't get to the proper volcano that they did because it's totally an exclusion area. We found another active volcano. It was a day and a half's walk across uh, sort of wild countryside, which uh, had its own challenges carrying all our kit and as, as you know carrying the sticks you know the, the tripod for the camera's hard work so we're alternating that between us climbed the mountain slept on the the edge of the mountain um crater there in tents that were far too small i like mexico so i'm only five foot eight but in mexico i feel tall um, <laughs> and my friend karim shah who's now a, a producer uh, al jazeera actually who's a six foot four geordie he had to sleep with his feet sticking out of the tent because they just weren't long enough now we were up at just before dawn so we caught the golden hour all the light and whatever filming that and then i did a piece of the camera and then i abseiled down into this active volcano over 
steaming, bubbling sort of heat um, so that I could scrape sulfur off the side of the, the crater wow. and bring it back up. Now, I had a moment there where I'd, I thought I'd locked off on my descender and uh, it slipped. And so I started to, to drop into uh, the um, crater and into the, it was actually at that point, it was really just steam and a geezer underneath me because that looked really good with all the steam mm. coming up. Mm. Uh, and I remember thinking at the time, you idiot, you've killed yourself by not paying attention. But luckily the uh, safety guy who was um, a local Mexican climber was on the safety rope and he, he was alert enough to lock me off and, and save me. So, yeah, sometimes overconfidence on a TV set can be, well, or location can be a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah complacency is, is your worst enemy, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'll blame it on being tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, after that hike, I that yomp for, for one and a half days carrying stuff. Yeah. Um, so what's your favourite area of history and i'm prompt what prompts this is that i remember seeing you i realize having watched a recent facebook posting of of some old footage we're not that old uh you on time team which is one of my favorite shows of all time by the way uh as a roman uh centurion let's say a roman officer mm -hmm. putting the time team presenters and some volunteers through what it was actually like reenactment of what it was like to be uh, a legionnaire back in at that time and i thought oh gosh that's john so how did you get an involvement in in time team was it was was it for the same reasons as uh, a scrap heap challenge reared up no time team was slightly different insofar as i'd been doing some work with the omen street guard who are a roman reenactment group and at the time, we were the best Roman reenactment group in, in the world. And uh, we did proper academic papers based on the reconstructions. And I had the pleasure to do one of the keynote addresses at a major conference and things like that based on reconstructions. And Time Team approached the Omen Street Guard about a couple of jobs, one of which was building a Roman crane. And four of us ended up building a Roman crane from for Time Team uh, that lifted a half-ton block. It's that Jeopardy moment. It's all been made with hand tools, all out of oak. Is it going to lift that half-ton block? Which it did, luckily. Uh, and then I got contacts with Time Team, with the producers and whatever, and got on really well with Tony. Tony yeah. is he's a wonderful person to work with. On that job with the crane, um, as we were um, working... We had a break. We had a 15-minute break. And he took the time. Instead of taking his own break, he went to chat to local school children who were watching what was going on. You know, he took time out to try and encourage them to enjoy history and archaeology. And I thought, yeah, well done, Tony. You didn't have to do that. You could have hidden away, but you took that time. That's the mark um, of a real man, isn't it? I, I love I, I'm oh, so pleased to know that. Yeah, he's, I've worked on many of Tony's series, and he is a thoroughly nice bloke. And his, his social conscience is immense. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, the Roman Centurion one, uh, they said, it's a time team live. It's a special. We want to get some of the time team fan club involved in it. What can we do? So we cooked up this crazy idea of dropping four volunteers in armour and beasting them and marching them around and, and ultimately shooting 
arrows at them so they were hiding behind their shields and things like that. Anecdote number whatever. Mm. At that point, the team who'd been hiding, dressed as, as Iron Age British warriors with bows who were about to attack us and make it all exciting, apparently they had a wager that my son Sam, who was one of the archers on the shoot, who was only about 12 at the time, that, that he couldn't take my crest off with an arrow because I've got the big crest on top of my helmet. He only just missed at 40 yards, so it was a good shot. But wow. I wasn't pleased. <laughs> So would you say Rome, Rome, Roman history is your favourite area? Oh, yeah. I, I love Roman history, um, particularly that early imperial period. Uh, so first century into early second century is fascinating. Um, I've been very lucky to, to do stories about the Roman Empire all over, including back to Palestine, as we talked about, with, mm. uh, with the siege and, and what have you. I... I don't speak, I can't read Latin very well. Um, it's not my strength, but looking at original uh, translations of original documents and then trying to reconstruct history from them is fascinating. Yeah, I agree. My my helper on, uh, on my side project, right, in the, these novels, uh, uh, Angela is a, is a Latin scholar uh, and, she, and she, uh, she, she's still studying it. And she said, it only comes in handy if you're going to speak to the Pope, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> What I would say to you, though, please, sir, if I may, what with your ability as an archer, what with your ability to to build um, uh, Iron Age fort ramparts and knock up a quick trebuchet or a crane in, in 20 minutes, come the apocalypse, can we all come and live at your house, please? <laughs> the apocalypse is a lot of fun. Uh, way back when I was soldiering as an engineer, we did specialise in nuclear, biological, chemical warfare mbc or abc as it is now atomic uh -huh. biological chemical mm. um so i trained in all the hotlining and decontamination things and stuff like that uh which is yeah interesting stuff but we now do it for fun yeah. we've started a bit of a a bit of a scene uh we've got a facebook group pa uk and uh, we've run a couple of events where people come along dress the part dress their camps and just enjoy dramatizing the apocalypse in an enjoyable way um there are serious workshops about food from plants and all this sort of thing but mainly it's about enjoying immersion in this fantasy science fiction world of what the apocalypse would be like yes but survival wise i've done things like living in in an iron age village uh for an extended period of time or in medieval houses for an extended period of time one of the best projects I ever did was we mined iron ore for ourselves. We crushed it, roasted it, smelted it, and turned it into an Iron Age knife. So the whole process, all done with the correct tools and, and techniques. Um, and so if I can make a knife from rock, I oh. think I might man in the apocalypse. <laughs> I think you could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, PA UK, uh, post-apocalypse. It's PA. Yeah, it's post-apocalypse, but it's just P-A-U-K for post-apoc. Yeah. In addition to your post-apocalyptic fascination, you also find time to run an outfit, magnificent outfit, in my opinion, with whom I have some loose association, called the Ministry of Steam Punk. Now, uh, our listeners will know that I, I try very hard to be uh, a novelist, uh, and my novels have a steampunk 
aspect to them, and which is how we first got to meet one another. And a decade ago, you sat at the Ministry of Steampunk. Um, and I want to pursue that in a moment, please. But before I do, as the godfather of British steampunk, I bestow that accolade upon you now, much to your embarrassment, I'm sure, but let me do it. I'm asked to define steampunk. And every time I, I, I try to define it, it comes out differently. So can you give me, air quotes, a definitive? Mm, no, that's not fair. No, what, what's John Naylor's uh, description of, of steampunk? Steampunk is a creative community arts movement that celebrates the past, particularly the Georgian, Victorian, Edwardian past, but mixes in a really healthy dose of science fiction mm. and imagination. It's if Jules Verne and H.G. Wells were moved to today and given the technology, it's what they'd be doing. Yes. Yeah, that's perfect. Perfect. I'm going to write that down and quote that as well, please. Thank you very much, John. Okay. Uh, and I must admit, the steampunk community in this country, and I think overseas as well, they are uh, they welcomed me in very, very, very warmly because I was very much a Johnny-come-lately to it. Uh, so I sometimes felt maybe that they might have looked at as saying, oh, hey, his TV career is winding down, so now he's trying to hitch his wagon to our horse. But didn't think that. They, they were so welcoming and warming. And they are the nicest. I'm here to tell you, uh, my listener, that they are the nicest people you could ever wish to meet. But as you say, so creative. I, the, and the breadth of creativity is astonishing uh, from makers to artists, to okay, writers like me, uh, comic book illustrators. Uh, th the broad canvas is astonishing. It embraces every, every aspect of the creative arts, doesn't it? It, it does. And, and I often stand up and I talk to people about the democratisation of creativity. We're at a point where with the phone in our pocket, we can shoot broadcast quality television. Yes. We're at a point where anybody can put things into the broadcast domain using the internet and things like that. But by the same token, traditional art, you don't have to go to St. Martin's or wherever or study fine art or anything like that. Um, I dropped art and history at 13, and yet I've had exhibitions of my sculptures that have been seen by tens of thousands of people. Mm. And I feel totally depressed with the old imposter syndrome thing. But by the same token, if a dodgy old geezer like me can end up making TV shows and things like that, yeah. then why can't a youngster coming through who might not have the advantages of being able to go for four years at an art school not be able to create things and imagine? Or somebody who's had an ordinary life, and I use ordinary in, in those air quotes again, mm. a, a, an ordinary life, be imaginative and creative in their own right. And that's what we've always tried to do with the ministry. Yes. The Ministry and PA UK are both about creating the playground for people to express their creativity. And if it's welcoming, then everybody's welcome, whether you're a professional or not. Although mm. I'll admit, when we first started out doing steampunk events and things, I kept very quiet about the fact I did prop making or whatever for a living. That sure. was, was Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the Ministry of Steampunk is basically yourself, your wife, Karen, Sam, your son, and a, a small coterie, really, of hyper-enthusiastic, talented volunteers. 
Yeah, but they are amazing people. It is a very small group, and we do that deliberately because, like all social scenes, people will try and and become important in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a bowls club will have an argument about who's going to be the new secretary and things like that. Yeah. It's not necessarily positive for the scene. So my nickname in, in the historical world and whatever is Tinker because I used to work with my hands and metal and all the time. And so Tinker's law is never let anybody be in charge who wants to be in charge. Beautiful. So they're all press ganged enthusiasts who love the scene rather than people who want to be important. And it works. Yeah. Um, And I I do find the whole scene to be utterly inspiring. Uh, When you have genii like uh, Ian Crichton, hair doctor, or, or Chris Osborne, or Nimrod Lancaster, when you look at the stuff they're making, it's this of such exquisite quality. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, I get very emotional when I look at this stuff because it is, it, it's stuff of absolute beauty, but they are so encouraging. When they look at my old tat, this old steampunk computer that I, I knocked up, they were so encouraging and enthusiastic about it. Which, it, it, it it's lovely. And who'd have thought, John, if I'm coming as a novelist, that, that actually being an author involved quite so much plumbing and carpentry, quite frankly. <laughs> you see, you're being sucked into my world of bodging things together just for the image. Yeah, exactly that. And I do enjoy it. And, Kat, and Catherine will say to me, uh, if I'm in the top end shed, what are you doing up there? And I can now legitimately say I'm putting stuff together uh, for my pastime. You know, I'm not putting stuff together as a hobby. Actually, I'm really enjoying doing this. Thank you. And I've got a legitimate, yeah. legitimate excuse to be up there. So thank you very much indeed for giving me that opportunity, John. <laughs> That's my pleasure. And, and I love seeing everything you create, whether it's a written word or the visual, you know. Uh, it's very kind. I mean, I mean, great people. I mean, Gary Nichols is a, is a, is a terrific uh, photographer in the steampunk genre. Colin... Matheson is, is a superb comic book artist. Alice Strange is a wonderful singer. I, I mention these names because they are uh, Scarlet Butterfly is a dancer. They are the top of their profession within the steampunk genre and, and, and could actually earn fantastic livings, I think, outside the steampunk genre as well. But they've been embraced by this community. I think it's just wonderful. I can't enthuse more about it. Sorry, that's me banging on. Prop making. I want to talk about prop making, please, very quickly, because I'm aware of your time pressing on and the stuff I want to get to. The, I urge anyone at risk of embarrassing you again, John, to go to YouTube and f- uh, go to the Ministry of Steampunk to watch John steampunking a Cyberman helmet. <laughs> he turns a kid's toy into a magnificent piece of steampunk. Well, I, I want to say art. It's beautiful to watch. I, and it was... It was a proper masterclass. It was a masterclass of immense skill. So thank you for doing that during lockdown. Yeah, I mean, lockdown was was hard for so many of us, wasn't it? And I felt I needed to to try and support people. So we did various things. And and that was a, a sort of half-baked attempt at running a bit of a clap. See, normally when I'm doing something like that for TV, I've got the cameraman or I am the cameraman and I've got yeah. people doing it. So trying to do it with a locked-off camera and ducking in and out, in my back garden, locked yes. down when I should have been tending the tomatoes, I suppose. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Was> <laughs> pretty- <laughs> but on a bigger scale, I remember uh, there's a magnificent annual event at the uh, National Space Centre in Leicester. And I remember the organiser of that, uh, Michaela, I think I've got this right, <laughs> saying to you, 
Um, can you do me a TARDIS control console life size? And yeah. when do you want it by? I think it was probably by next week, please. And you managed that. I, yeah, I thought- it was. It was an unfortunate one. The, the person who was supposedly bringing the life-size TARDIS console, because they'd got various Doctor Whos there, had uh, had to let them down. I don't know quite what the reason was, but had to let them down, couldn't attend. And it was a big deal. They needed this console. So Malika contacted me and said, could we do one? And I said, yeah, sure. When's it for? This Friday. And this was on Wednesday. Yes. That was on Tuesday, actually, she contacted me, Tuesday night. said, okay, uh, and we'll try and record it for you. So we built it in 48 hours. And um, from finding the plans, getting the the stuff online, knocking it all together, we tried to document it, went out on social media feed. Uh, It included, it was Sam and I doing most of the building, Uh, Karen running around like the proverbial, getting Perspex tubes for the... the, uh, main time column and stuff like that uh, and trying to bodge things together, making fake switches out of um, the sort of profiling you use around the corner of, of your, your room and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. But we did it all. We painted it. We found the right color paint because days of black and white television, it was the Pertwee one. Oh, wow. um, we had to do it in white that isn't white it's slightly off white it's green it's a green white because that's how the black and white cameras responded mm-hmm. best so we did all that installed it and i remember um peter davidson colin sylvester mccoy and mr mcgann coming in mm-hmm. and they said oh we've been watching you building this on social media i'm thinking i've got four of the doctors telling me that we're watching me build this on social media <laughs> And, and Sylvester just went, phenomenal. And then Peter Davison went, do-do-do-do-do, phenomenal. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I got four doctors singing that. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, and also, I, I need to underscore the fact for my for my ardent listener that actually you had to make it transportable. So you had to be collapsible and put together a bull at the other end so you could transport the damn thing. Yeah, this is true. So it does all fold up into basically four major pieces and but then props are often like that the the days of the bbc having huge prop stores and being able to keep things whole mm. now nah, everything's theatrical flats smoke and mirrors darling That'd yes, be a good it... for a book. <laughs> <laughs> i mean okay life for the last 50 minutes we have realized that life for you is never get dull it never gets dull i mean right from the get-go your life has been i want to say a boy's own adventure it really has. And it's inspiring. And I've seen you stand in front of a, a crowd in a theatre, 500 people uh, entertaining the crowd, introducing various acts. Uh, does anything ever phase you? Or do you ever get nervous about anything? Do I ever get nervous about anything? Yeah, I do. I get nervous about serious things. Um I don't get nervous about anything to do with harm to myself. I'm fearless in that sense. But if it's harm to my family or friends, mm-hmm. that's another story. Uh, stand-up comedy terrified me, the whole idea of it. So I tried that um, just to overcome the fear. Mm-hmm. I wasn't terribly good. My wife's much better at stand-up than I am. But yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fear is something to be 
or nervousness is something to be approached and and beaten, I think. Yeah, yeah it all goes back to, in the Royal Engineers, um, the first day of training for um, EOD, bomb disposal. And the officer leading the course is, you know, we all leapt up and he says, sit down, gentlemen, as you were, relax. Okay, before we start, we're going to address the elephant in the room. Bomb disposal. We get killed. Effing get over it. Mm-hmm. Life's too short to be boring. Oh, yeah. And I went, you know what? You're right. Mm. He did at that point say, if, you, if this isn't for you, you're welcome to leave. And one chap, to his credit, said, you know, I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. And he stood up and he walked out. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the bravest man amongst us. Yeah. He was the one that, that was able to do that. And the rest of us sat there and we went on to learn how to dismantle World War II bombs or disrupt, you know, the famous controlled explosions and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, and it was fascinating and I loved it and had a lot of fun with it and made some great friends, some of whom are still with me many, many years later. But yeah, yeah life's too short to be boring. You don't have to do anything extreme like bomb disposal. Yeah. But if there's a chance, then, you know, carpe diem. Yeah, let us live our lives uh, with that maxim. I agree. It's a lovely expression. Lockdown for you was not sitting down twiddling your thumbs. I know I know for a fact that you, you worked as a driver, uh, as a frontline driver, delivering stuff and helping people out. But also, uh, it finally gave you the opportunity to put together, I guess, what must have been a long-held plan for you. And with your son, Sam, you actually created, refurbed and built a brand new film and television studio facility. Tell me about that, please. We had our own small studio that was where we built our props and maintained kit and things like that. That was great, but it wasn't a film studio. And we've always wanted a playground. Don't we all want a playground? Mm -hmm. We can have a garden shed, but if you can go bigger than a garden shed, and then Sam was, was uh, furkling around online during lockdown and he'd found an old spring factory in Sheffield that actually was being used as the RSPCA's um, charity shop. Uh, well, you know, where all the stuff comes to be sorted and things like that. But during lockdown, of course, their shops had all been closed. They couldn't afford to keep it going. So they, the, the property was up and vacant. Um, and they needed to get shot of it because it was costing them money to maintain. Mm-hmm. So we had lots of conversations as a family because it was committing large amounts of, of savings. And we're thinking, we don't know when we're ever going to work again. Um, but we took it on. And during, that was last October. And then we set to and we did, Sam and I did all the building ourselves. We had a few friends drop in and help. We got electricians in to put the three phase in and stuff like that but everything else we did ourselves and we built a complex for karen's costume business so there's a thousand historical costumes there and loads of props and whatever there's some offices and and a classroom at the front for the ministry of steampunk for for steampunk because that's a a huge look but we got two studios Mm -hmm. and in those studios we can shoot we already have everything from music videos to meet the Richardsons were in filming, you know, the comedy yeah, series. Great. Um, you know, John Richardson 
superb, wonderful comic and a really genuine guy as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've just created this playground and it's a playground that we can use for professional filming, mm. um, for pushing the technology boundary, which is something we've been doing a lot with the new augmented reality projects we've been working on. Or um, we can offer it to young actors to shoot showreels for, you know, peppercorn mm -hmm. rates, a few pounds an hour just to cover the electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, or student films, we just loaned loads of stuff to a student film to, to get them going. We want to pay forward as well as being a, a resource. And, and South Yorkshire's really engaged with it. And not just South Yorkshire, but Manchester and, and whatever. And... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great. We, we it's a it's like a tiny version of Pinewood, a mini full service studio in Sheffield, just five minutes from Meadowhall, and it's it's great. It's so exciting. I've I've seen its development on social media. What's the uh, what's the website address where anyone who's interested in hiring oh. the facility can uh, contact you? It's Nexus Studio. That's all one word. Uh -huh. Nexus N E X U S studio studio.co.uk the website's appalling because we're too busy making television to make websites <laughs> yeah tr i guess yes of course i having seen the website i've got to tell you it's not it's it's oh. it, it tells the story very well i want to mention as well before we wrap up this terrific chat can we mention karen's business you mentioned a thousand costumes hanging on racks now of every historical flavor imaginable so how can we contact karen if we want to hire a, a centurion's outfit or a, a victorian lady's magnificent full-length robe all her direct contact details are on the nexus studios website so if you go there and look down at the bottom is the contacts go straight through to karen for historical costumes and props that's terrific yeah. it's been an absolute joy uh, an eye-opener to hear your life story Yours has been a magnificent life well spent so far. Well, I've been very lucky. I've been very, very lucky, including meeting wonderful friends who've helped and nudged along the way and given input like yourself. Oh, it's, uh, you're, you're very kind. Thank you so much for your time. You know, uh, to spend an hour in your company has been truly magnificent. Thank you very much indeed. And we've all learned a lot. And and there is a new studio, folks. There is a new studio out there. It's in Sheffield, near Meadowhall. And I urge you, especially if, you're, if just, you've just moved with the Channel 4 to Leeds, I think that's the place to go. I really do. <laughs> John, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. And it's a, a joy and an honour knowing you. And I, I'm proud to call you a friend. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. I, I'm just... Yeah, very, very embarrassed actually to do this, but I'm, I'm proud to be your friend. Thank you. I'm glad you did it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time.